This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts Podcast with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. If you know me, you know how obsessed I am with live performance. To me, nothing replaces being in a theater and the lights going down and the orchestra starts to play and that first moment of magic. And I know the way I feel about theater, some people feel about sports or opera or dance or comedy or food. And what if there was a place that you could go and find out which live events are going on near you that night? And then for a discount price, you can get off your couch, put down that clicker, and experience the magic that is live performance. Well, there is a place, goldstar.com. You just go to that website, you type in your city, and every amazing live event will be listed at discount prices. Theater, dance, comedy, film, food, concerts, sports. No more staying home. You are going to go out and build memories and experiences that expand your mind and heart through live performance with goldstar.com. Goldstar is in 26 cities around the country with over 8 million members already signed up to find out what event is going on near you. So go to goldstar.com, get out of your house and build memories that are magic for you and your family. Expand your mind, expand your hearts. Go see live performance by using goldstar.com. Tell them Alana sent you. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Alana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact, recently I got to interview Jason Robert Brown, multi-Tony Award winning Jason Robert Brown, in front of a live audience of thousands at City Center in New York City after Encores presented his song cycle, Songs for a New World, and on the same day that his newest album, how We React and How We Recover was released. It was an extraordinary conversation. It was hilarious. It was poignant. And the audience is a really active part of the discussion. And I also got him to sing off of his new album. And the whole thing was a thrill. So without further ado, here is Jason Robert Brown on the podcast. Enjoy. Look around somewhere near in the ground. I can hear there's a sound something no one ever knows. I'm not here to see me, but I'm just going to introduce myself. I'm Annie Kaufman. I'm, uh, I don't know. Wow. Maybe you are here to see me. 
I'm uh, one of the co-artistic directors, along with Janine Tesori of uh, Encore's Off Center. And uh, I'm so glad you guys made it out to see Jason Robert Brown's Songs for a New World. Wasn't that something else? And I'm super glad that you guys are sticking around for the live podcast of Little Known Facts with Alana Levine, who happens to be a Broadway actress. Perhaps you've seen her in uh, Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, Wrong Mountain, or Last Night at Ballyhoo. Uh, Little Known Facts has over how many? Over 100 episodes to date. And this critically acclaimed podcast features interviews with the most successful artists in theater, film, and television. So I would like to welcome to the stage our host of Little Known Facts, Alana Levine, and the great Jason Robert Brown. Come on out, guys. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Can everybody hear us? My only wish for tonight is that at some point, snow starts lightly drifting down on both of us, and then I will have had a, a bucket list moment completed. My name is Alana Levine, and I host a podcast called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. And you can find it on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are heard. And I say all this because this is being recorded for said podcast. And so now you are all part of this very special live recording with Sir Jason Robert Brown. It's actually Lord. Lord. Lord and Master Jason Robert Brown. And as we all know, this is kind of an amazing day because not only were we all here tonight for Songs for a New World, which was extraordinary. And I know I speak for all of us when I say that. Today is also significant because Jason's solo album, How We React and How We Recover, also dropped, as you crazy kids like to say. Um, so the idea that we're sitting here next to someone whose work from 25 years ago and literally today are all happening at the same time, it's sort of heady for me anyway. Me too. And I'm wondering, because when I sat here watching the show, I thought it was extraordinary that I think there's like 3,000 seats in this theater, if not more, and everyone here knew almost every single word. <laughs> to Songs for a New World, which is not a little thing. And I wondered how it feels for you. I think we're here, other than the three people whose concierge was like, oh, there's something at City Center tonight. Um, <laughs> and for you three people, Songs for a New World was done about 23 years ago, um, when Jason was four years old, which is insane. <laughs> he was a prodigy, as your concierge, I'm sure, mentioned. And maybe you can tell us, since I was not there, although how I wish I had been, how you and the director Daisy Prince took some material and made it into this show that 25 years later is resonating in a really remarkable way. Hi. Um, uh, I had come to New York and was uh, playing in piano bars because it was sort of the only way I could make any money because um, I have no actual skills. So I... Uh, <laughs> I met Daisy in a piano bar because she was dating one of the guys who played there. Daisy would come, there was a group I was playing for called The Tonics, uh, and The Tonics used to go sing upstairs, and because I could play rock and roll kind of stuff, they asked me if I would play for them. And after every show that The Tonics would do, Daisy would 
corral them in a corner of 88s and she would say, all right, this is what was wrong with your show. And she would just sort of tell them what, why they had put things in the wrong order or, you know, or don't put your hand like that. And I thought, you know what, that's what I need for this review I want to put together. Because I had seen um, Closer Than Ever, a, a show by Maltby and Shire. Um, and I said, oh, I, I want to do that. So I was putting all my songs together into a, a review. And I thought, Daisy's the right person to help me do that, because she can just say to me, all your songs are in the wrong order, and don't do that with your hands. So I thought, great. Um, Where is she now? <laughs> uh, well, she was, uh, she, right now, she's in Florida. But, um, <laughs> but in the 23 years uh, since then, uh, Daisy and I uh, have since done, we did the last five years together also. Um, <laughs> And on Tuesday, we actually start rehearsal for an, a new show that we've been working on called The Connector with Jonathan Mark Sherman that we're doing up at, uh, up at Vassar at the New York Stage and Film. So, um, so that's, what, that's what happened to Daisy. Uh, so we, uh, we were in the piano bar and we put the show up for the first time at 88s uh, with just some friends of mine and we did that. And it took about five or six years, I think, of us trying to figure out how to put the show up. And finally, uh, if you saw the, the lobby project that they did here tonight, you, it was true. Uh, I had been working as the music director for a show by Yoko Ono, which I don't recommend. Uh, and <laughs> I, uh, I think... Why? Yoko's mastering engineer at the time said to me, you know, the thing about Yoko is she loves humanity and hates people. There will be t-shirts in the lobby that say exactly that on your way out. So it was an exciting experience. And then um, I think the artistic director at the WPA felt so bad for me that I had gone through it that he agreed to listen to uh, what was then just called The New World. And he came up to my apartment. I played through the whole thing for him. And he was like... I I don't know what the hell to do with it, but let's just do it. Let's just do the show, which you could do back then because it was the WPA theater, which was about the size of these two stools put together. And it was just sort of a fun thing that he wanted to do. So we did it there. We did it for 28 performances. There were 105 seats in the theater, I think, uh, which means that all of you would have more than filled the entire run of the show. We didn't know there was math tonight. <laughs> There's math. And then the show closed. And there would be the end of the story. Daisy's um, folks uh, helped to raise some money so that we could record the show. I wanted to ask you about that because Daisy's folks, when he says that, <laughs> are show folk. For those of you who are not here because the concierge sent you here tonight, her dad is Hal Prince. And I was thinking... <laughs> Which is extraordinary because I think for anyone who dreamed of being a part of the musical theater, I talk a lot to my guests about how you can have all of the incredible work ready and waiting to go, but we all need a little bit of luck in order to kind of break through. So somehow this remarkable thing happened where this person you connected with, who helped curate and put together this incredible show, is the daughter of someone I imagine you would have heard of and admired. Yeah. So, so to just say, and then her dad or, and mom helped us is, is an extraordinary thing because how did you negotiate meeting an idol? Everything about being part of that family 
is uh, sui generis in a way that is a little hard to explain, but Daisy took me on as sort of her project and we were gonna write this show together. And because Daisy had taken me on, it meant that I was just part of the family. It was not something I planned or expected or imagined that that was how that was gonna go. And I didn't say to Daisy, oh, direct my show, because I was like, now I can get Hal Prince to show up. I, it, she was just the person who was the most simpatico with what I wanted to do. So suddenly I was just part of the family. And it wasn't in an artistic way. I mean, they thought the music I wrote was great. And, you know, Hal would occasionally wander in if we were rehearsing in his house and he would be like, yeah, it sounds good. And then he'd walk out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I was, you could have the panic attacks if you wanted to. It just didn't strike me as a, a, a really great idea. So I, the panic attack came, we were about to go into production for Songs for New Worlds. Uh, so I, this was early, maybe this was mid-1994, show opened in 95. So I was 23 or 24 years old when this thing happened, which is that Hal called and asked if I would come into his office for a meeting. And I had met him, you know, I, and I had, I had actually gone into his office when I was like 21 and played Hear My Song for him after I had just met Daisy. And he was like, it sounds great. And he sent me out. Um, <laughs> but he called me into his office for a meeting and he said, so I've been working on this show and uh, Steve was gonna do it, and now Steve isn't gonna do it. I'll leave it to you to figure out. Uh, and so Steve's gone, do you wanna take a look at it? Because I'm the logical person you go to when Steve Sondheim bails out. You just get that 24 year old who's doing a show with your daughter. That's the way that that works. Everything started wrapping around like that. They're still my family. I, I, I would not be here without them. I would not be anywhere without them. My entire career is based on the fact that I fell into that family and they embraced me and supported me and I gave me every opportunity and every cushion I could need. That is incredible. And uh, that show was Parade. I don't know if you're familiar, concierge aside with Parade for which JRB, as my slippers, monograms now will say forever, won Tonys. You won some Tonys. I won Tonys, yes. Uh, well, in your life, you've won some Tonys, and I wonder, what is that like? I think there are several versions of what it's like when you win Tony Awards. Uh, I always win them for shows that have closed. Um, <laughs> But I get to say I always win them. I mean, you know, there's like, there's things I get to say. Uh, so it's really cool. There's always some sort of weird, everything in my career, because I'm Jewish especially, everything in my career has an asterisk next to it. <laughs> so this show has an asterisk next to it, and Parade has one in the Bridges of Madison County, and Honeymoon in Vegas has like a whole host of asterisks next to it. You know, and I, and I, emojis at yes. this point. <laughs> yes, mainly with the crying and the, yeah. Uh, so... So that's, that's what it feels like. It's really, I'll tell you, the, the thing about winning a Tony Award that really counted is that when I won it for Parade, I was 28. And my mother still was, I think, deeply concerned about the fact that I had dropped out of college. Uh, 
and had no real understanding of how things were going to move forward, which to be fair, who did? So, I, but then I was there at the, we did it at the Gershwin Theater that year and she was there and Rosie O'Donnell was on the stage and my mom was in the balcony and you know, that there's me on the television and she could go into work the next day and her, the other teachers at her school would say, I saw your son and, <laughs> and because of that, it was suddenly okay. Everything was going to be okay. So when you ask what winning a Tony felt like, it felt like I had, fi it, was, it felt like graduating from medical school. It was, I finally, I had, I had done the thing. Speaking of the other, the other many Tonys you won for Bridges of Madison County, um, I happen to have the unique pleasure of being friends with Kelly O'Hara. And I told Kelly, who's in London, doing The King and I, that I was interviewing Sir Jason Robert Brown Lord. tonight, Lord. And she wrote me this that I wanted to share, if you don't mind. Will you indulge Kelly O'Hara for one moment? Hello, dearest. Oh, no, that's what I wrote to her. Sorry. Hope London is treating you well, darling. I wrote, this is her response. Alana, this is so exciting. Wish I could be there. Jason gave me the most full and free bit of character singing I have ever had. No one writes for a soprano who is strong and sexy and conflicted. Jason did that for me. And it felt like he did it overnight. When we started the project, Francesca's music was more in keeping with the rustic, folky quality of Robert's. So when I asked him for more, he showed up with the opening number to build myself a home. And I guess I could go as far to say as it changed my life. It matched so many parts of me. Then he wrote the rest. And I should mention that the first time Jason hired me, the out-of-town tryout of the last five years as the understudy, I wasn't quite right for the score. Was she fired? Uh, no, she didn't take the gig. So over a decade later, he wrote me one, a lesson in patience. I am unbelievably grateful for Jason. Bridges still feels like the greatest emotional musical gift I have ever received. Three. That's more earnest than I was led to believe this podcast was going to be. So, people who write musicals often say that the reason characters sing is because they had no other choice. And I want to understand what that means. Why must people in musicals sing when they do? In my musicals, people sing because that's the way I know how to tell stories. I, you know, I tell stories with music and I can sit down at the piano and whether I'm even singing, I can make the music tell a story. In fact, I don't know how to play unless I sort of am telling some kind of story. So for me, people sing because that's perfectly natural. And I, I think there's this this is a weird division in theater between there are plays and there are musicals, and there is a musical is a weird version of a play. So there must be some reason why people sing because you don't do that in a play. And I don't, that's not the way I think of musicals. I, I sort of went backwards. I guess a, a lot of people, I learned musicals from the albums first. You know, I used to always know them from the records. So scores, 
to me are collections of songs in which people are, you know, feeling things and expressing things. And that's the same as any other album. That's the same as a Paul Simon album or a Stevie Wonder album or a Beatles album or a Joni Mitchell record or anything that I might have. All of those things are a collection of songs in which people are having an emotional response and singing about it. So when musicals happen to me, they're just, you want them to be good songs and there are, there are moments that are good songs and there are moments that are not going to be good songs. And I think that is also depends on who the writer is. But to me, it's not about, oh, you sing because you can't speak anymore. I mean, yes, I, I'm not even discounting that. That's, that's true in a lot of cases. But beyond that, you sing because it's the right time to sing. It, it, it would make a good song if you sang here. And I figure <laughs> musicals are supposed to be made up of good songs. So, Let's talk about, if you don't mind, I don't want to embarrass you, but I listened to your new album today and I thought it was magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. And I don't know if you've had a chance to hear it yet, but you will as soon as you get home. Because uh, it's magnificent. And why it is in part so magnificent is I feel like it was written at a moment we are all really looking for uh, something to make us feel better or hold on to, and even if just for a few minutes of distraction. And I wanted to know about the first song, which is called Hope. And can you talk a little bit about what that was born out of? I, um, I woke up the morning after the election. I hadn't slept a whole lot anyway. I don't know if any of you did. I, uh, I woke up the morning after the election, and we had to do a little bit of rushing because uh, my oldest daughter had a uh, had an interview at a girls school and you know we had to get her ready for that and do all of that stuff and you know for any of you who have school age kids this shit is insane you know we're all the, like the the pressure was really high <laughs> So I, none of us were in any mood to be dealing with it, but okay, we're just we're gonna go. Um, and uh, I remembered as we were getting ready to walk out the door that Kristen Chenoweth had asked me if I would be her guest for her Broadway concert that night. She had a different guest every night and I was the one that night. And I didn't remember it until I was about to walk out the door. And I said, oh God, okay, you guys go, I'll meet you there, but I better take a shower. And I, so as I'm going and I, I'm going in the shower and I'm thinking, what am I supposed to sing? Because everything I was gonna sing felt either really trivial or deeply hostile. And <laughs> So I, uh, while I was sitting in the shower, I thought, well, I, I, I am, and I, Georgia, my wife who's here, hi, George. Um, uh, she will tell you, I'm not capable of writing a song quickly. I, I sort of have to think about it for about six weeks, and then it all comes out in about a half hour, but I'm sitting there procrastinating for a long time. But I had no options, and I thought, well, I guess I'll just write a song. That's what I'll do, I'll write a song, which was a, a crazy decision. And I was in the shower and I, the words came to me, I have come to sing a song about hope. I don't believe it, but I'm going to sing it. And I thought, I, uh, that's, that's the thing I wanna say. I wanna talk about feeling a thing that I don't entirely believe, but I have to. I have no option but to do it. And I went, uh, while I was in the cab, I was writing it down on a pad, uh, and I got to the school where we were going to the interview, and I, a girl's school in Manhattan on the morning after that election, it was like a tomb. It was, I, I mean, it was a wake going on in there. And I, I came into this, this very sad environment, 
And I sat down next to Georgia, and our daughter had gone in for her interview. And Georgia looked at the pad, and she said, what is that? And I said, I, I think I'm singing this tonight at Kristen Chenoweth's concert. And she said, well, do you want to share it with me? And I sort of looked around, and I started to sing the first line, and I couldn't do it. And I started crying while I was singing it. And I was like, no, I, no, 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 no. <laughs> And I thought, well, this is going to be a problem tonight um, if I have to do the song on Broadway. Uh, you know, that will be interesting. But I just crossed my fingers and, and uh, uh, you know, ultimately I did it that night. And uh, Kristen, I remember, came up to me after I did it. I, you know, it got a big response during the concert, which I was grateful for. But Kristen came up to me afterwards and she thanked me. She said, I, I don't think I'm allowed to say that, but I am so glad somebody was able to be on this stage tonight and say that. And I think everyone needed to hear it. So that's the song. I, I, I keep hoping I, I will have no reason to sing it anymore. But uh, thus far, uh, I keep having to sing it. Well, what was so intense about that morning, most of us promised our kids when they went to sleep that their president would be Hillary Clinton. And it was really, for me as a parent, it was the first time I saw my kids look at me and they were like, you promised me. And, and I said, I know, I know, I'm really sorry. And, uh, and that's where we all have been living for quite a while. And it's a hard thing to look at a little child and, and feel like you've betrayed them. But I think, you know, have any of you seen the, the Mr. Rogers documentary that's out right now that's sort of extraordinary? <laughs> We'll get back to Jason Robert Brown in one second. But only to say that he's famous for saying, when things are in crisis, look for the helpers. And I was thinking that, I don't know, your new record feels like that to me. It's an emotional helper, and that's um, kind of an amazing thing. I want to make sure that we get you to play for us before this evening is over. Georgia, my daughter's name is Georgia, so I'm very happy that you're here, and it's a beautiful name. <laughs> It's beshared, as my grandmother would say, asterisk grandmother would say. A couple of things. I just want to acknowledge that I think it would be impossible to imagine the current generation of musical theater writers and what they would be doing had they not had you to inform and inspire and to listen to. I was asked recently if I had to take a few cast recordings to a deserted island, what would they be? And immediately, I wasn't allowed to think about it. It had to be the first three, and I said, falsettos, Sunday in the park with George, and the last five years. Um, <laughs> Each of those were so meaningful and in different ways and impactful in my life, and that's the canon. That's the canon. So I want to thank you for tonight. I want to thank you for this extraordinary concert. I do have a question because there's always a little-known fact involved. Is it true that at your bar mitzvah, you played a song about a breakup with a girl, although you had never had a girlfriend, and it, that you had written it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the, I, at my bar mitzvah, the, the entertainment, uh, this was, mind you, it was 1983. So the entertainment was a guy named David King. And David King came with uh, rows of keyboards and, uh, you know, 1983 version of a beatbox. 
And so he would do all that, because we didn't have a DJ or anything like that. So he would play all of that. And so I remember that I had asked for this to happen, of course, but I remember being sort of pushed behind this bank of keyboards that was, I was, I was a very short little kid, and I pushed behind this bank of keyboards and singing this very earnest song that went on in a way that is not atypical of my later work for about <laughs> 35 minutes. Um, <laughs> to the general mystification of my friends and family but i you know it was good to get inoculated to the uh, against the uh, the mystification of my friends and family since i would also spend my life uh, dealing with that and is that song in any way part of the show we saw tonight no fucking way no okay <laughs> all right i just want to say uh, Sorry, thank Mom. you <laughs> Thank you, Jason Robert Brown, for uh, being you and for writing such beautiful music and for inspiring us all to do better. And when I think about your music, it just all feels about moments and connections. And I think it's really interesting in so many ways, the themes of Songs for a New World and how we react and how we recover are similar in theme because it's all about, to me anyway, missed opportunities, connections, and what we strive for. And all of those are things that we live with every day and yearn for. And I know that we listen to try to feel less lonely and to connect to each other. And you give that to us. And I thank you for that deeply. So would you be generous enough to play something from your new album for us? Oh, sure. Thank you. I'm, I keep vacillating between two different songs. I w you don't know, Annie was up my ass about the union, and I can't do two because we all got to get out of here at a certain point. So I'll do this one. All right. Well, maybe if you don't pause between the two, no one will know. <laughs> There, I'll do the one that's easier to sing. <laughs> I think that if I tinker long enough, one might appear and look, it's here. One verse is done, the work's begun. I come to sing a song about hope in spite of everything ridiculous and sad though I'm beyond belief depressed confused and mad well I got dressed I underestimated how much that would take I didn't break until right now I sing of hope and don't know how 
So maybe I can substitute strength Because I'm strong I'm strong enough I got through lots of things I didn't think I could And so did you I know that's true And so we sing a song about hope Though I can't guarantee there's something real behind it I have to try to show my daughters I can find it And so today When life seems crazy and impossible to bear It must be there Fear never wins, it's what I hope, see, I said hope, the work begins. I just want to thank Annie Kaufman and everyone at City Center. I want to thank you guys for staying and being such a magnificent audience. I want to thank Jason Robert Brown for making me cry. Get home safe, everyone. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.